Wine Stories, a podcast to discover the world of wine by Etienne Pommier. This is July the 3rd, 2021 in Champagne, and it is a rainy and slightly gloomy day in spite of the season. But the clouds covering the city of Reims on this Saturday morning are nothing in comparison with the storm that is about to hit the producers, when, around midday, News arrived from the Kremlin announced by the Russian agency TASS. Russia has just claimed ownership of the Champagne appellation. The day before, Vladimir Putin has signed an amendment to the law on alcoholic beverages stating that, from now on, the use of the Russian term Champagne is reserved to Russian wines only and that all other sparkling wines, including Champagnes, are now to be classified simply as bubbly wines. Champagne growers can still use the Latin name on their bottles, but they have to modify their back label that can no longer use the Cyrillic mention. The response isn't long to come, and the Champagne regulation body, the CIVB, quickly issues a press release condemning the ruling, while Moet and Chandon decides to temporarily stop all exports to Russia, and even in the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the situation creates some turmoil. For the Champagne houses, This is a capital offense, legally, but first and foremost, symbolically, for all wealthy Russians know that true champagne comes from France. So why did Vladimir Putin decide to target champagne wine? It's true that the diplomatic situation between France and Russia in the summer of 2021 is quite tensed, but this decision, passed off as mere economic protectionism, is actually highly political and diplomatic. And in order to understand why the Kremlin has decided to target Champagne, we have to go back in time to the beginnings of the relationship and the bond that exist between Russia and the famous French bubbles. The first sparkling wines appear in the 1500s, and it is not in Champagne, but in the south of France that the monks of the Limoux Abbey start producing a sparkling wine using the ancestral method. This method implies bottling the still fermenting must in order to trap the carbonic gas inside the bottles and make the wine foamy. But while the intuition and experiments of the monks yield results, we still don't quite understand the mechanism of the fermentation, and it is only a century later, thanks to the work of English doctor Christopher Merritt and the experiments of the famous Dom Perignon in Champagne, that the foaming process will eventually be mastered. The Champenoise developed the traditional method, starting by a first fermentation to obtain a base dry wine, before bottling it with added sugar and yeast in order to induce a second ferment to make it sparkling. This new method has several advantages. First, it allows blending different plots prior to the second fermentation to obtain a more balanced and harmonious wine. Furthermore, the longer the second fermentation lasts, the finer the bubbles. And finally, the aging on lees during the maturing period creates new aromatic compounds that contribute to the wine's complexity. It is this process, called autolysis, that gives champagne its toasted bread and brioche flavors. All these improvements lead to the production of better quality wines that will take over European markets. 
as the continent discovers this new style of wine in the 18th century, champagne production takes off and its distribution reaches new markets as far as Imperial Russia. There are even attempts to replicate the champagne method and the first mention of sparkling winemaking in Russia dates back to 1756 in the Rostov region. During the 19th century, this expansion will continue as the quality of the wine improves thanks to the increasing know-how of the vintners. In the 1850s, the Russian nobility is already craving champagne, but it is a dinner in Paris on June the 7th, 1867, that will seal the lasting relationship between Russia and Champagne, the Three Emperors' Dinner. For the Paris World's Fair in 1867, Tsar Alexander II invites at the Café Anglais Prussian sovereign Wilhelm I and his Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, as well as his own son, the future Alexander III. For this diplomatic and gourmet encounter, chef Adolphe Dugléré has prepared a 16-course menu, including quail pastries, blue lobster à la parisienne, or ortolans. And to pair with this menu, his sommelier Claudius Burdel has chosen seven wines, including Madeira 1810, Ikem 1847, Lafitte 1848, and for dessert, Rodra Champagne. What remains of this historical dinner that lasted over eight hours is the table and a copy of the menu served on that day in the collections of Restaurant La Tour d'Argent in Paris. Impressed by the quality of the champagne tasted on that night, the Tsar will decide from now on to send his own cellar master every year to Champagne to take part in the blending process of the cuvee reserved for the Imperial Court in St. Petersburg. In 1876, the cellar master presents a special demand from the Tsar to Louis Roder. Alexander II wants the house to craft a special wine for him in a special bottle. Because the Tsar is worried. Amidst the political turmoil in Russia at that time, he fears an assassination attempt. So, he asks for the bottle to be transparent in order to enjoy the golden color of the wine, but also to make sure that it hasn't been poisoned. And he also requests a flat bottom so that no explosive device can be hidden in the pant. The Champagne House asks a Flemish glassmaker to blow a special crystal bottle fitting these requirements and starts bottling a unique cuvee made from Roder's finest vineyards. Alexander II was right to be worried, as he will eventually be killed on March 13, 1881. But the Imperial House will keep on buying the champagne after his demise. In 1908, his grandson, Tsar Nicholas II, will even appoint Roder as official supplier of his majesty's court. That's why, to this day, crystal bottles bear the coat of arms of the Russian Empire with the two-headed eagle. Imperial orders will stop with the 1917 Russian Revolution, and Rodra will not start selling to the public the first prestige cuvee in Champagne, Cristal, until 1945. Through the emperor, it is the whole Russian court that falls for Champagne, and at the end of the 19th century, the Tsar asks Prince Levgolitsyn to make sparkling wine in his own estate in Crimea and in Abrodiosso in the Krasnodar region in order to quench the thirst of the Russian nobility. The almost Mediterranean climate of these regions on the shores of the Black Sea is ideal for viticulture and dozens of hectares are soon planted in vines. 
1878, Golitsyn launches Novi Izvet, a Russian sparkling wine mimicking the traditional method that will make noise winning the Champagne gold medal at the World's Fair in Paris in 1900, in front of all the Champagne houses. But the war is coming, and Russia's commitment alongside France and the United Kingdom will be the downfall of the regime. The production of Novi Izvet will barely survive the war and the revolution, but restrictions and lack of supplies at the time nearly ruined the domain. And it will take another 15 years to see a revival of sparkling wine production in Russia in the 1930s, thanks to an unexpected involvement of the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Comrade Stalin. In the early 1930s, forced collectivization of the land and excessive confiscations of grain and other food caused millions of people to starve to death across the whole Soviet Union. This massive famine killed 6 to 8 million people, especially in Ukraine and in the Kuban area, where this tragedy is known as Holodomor. In 1934, while the food requirements are still far from being fulfilled across the country, the Kremlin decides to boost the production of sparkling wine. This decision seems shocking and completely out of place, given the context. But this is Stalin's idea, a politician's idea. He proclaims that champagne is an important sign of good life and well-being that socialism will bring to all. His intent is to finish converting the population to the Soviet project by ensuring to his people the supply of certain goods perceived as luxury in order to prove that a communist system can do better than a capitalist one, where these products are typically reserved for an elite. But Stalin has a problem. Making champagne is expensive. If he already has the vineyards in Crimea, in Georgia, or in the Rostov region, the long and expensive production process of the traditional method is incompatible with Soviet productivism and tight budgets. It is engineer Anton Frolov Bagreyev who brings him the solution. This enologist, who has already worked under Prince Golitsyn at Abrodioso, nearly got himself killed during the revolution for refusing to give wine barrels to a local militia. In 1928, he invents a new method to make sparkling wine, much cheaper than the champagne process. Specially designed stainless steel tanks allow him to control the temperature and the fermentation, while a filtering system allows to get rid of the sediments before bottling. In order to cope with Stalin's ambitions, the Soviet bureaucrats order the planting of new vineyards, build new wineries and hire plenty of workers thanks to special credits released by the state central bank. Frolov Bagrayev takes the head of the project and launches the mass production of Russian sparkling wine that will grow from 300,000 to nearly 12 million bottles by 1942. Stalin's champagne is born. But this foamy and sugary wine made according to Stalin's personal taste, has nothing to do with champagne, and the quality is mediocre. The continuous method will be perfected in the 1950s, but only to increase volumes. The wineries have been under immense pressure from the Soviet regime since the beginning to achieve the silly production targets set by Stalin. In 1938, a local newspaper had even publicly accused Abrodioso's director of being an enemy of the state when the winery 
failed to achieve its objectives. Originally, Prince Golitsyn had planted aligoté and chardonnay to make sparkling wine just like champagne. But in order to meet the demands of the authorities, more productive varieties are now used, and quality isn't even a question. It's just about making volume. Very high yields and production costs cut to the bare minimum allow to propose the Soviet Skoye Champagne Skoye to the public at a fairly affordable price across the Soviet Union. Culinary critic Anya von Bremen, born in the USSR, remembers the taste of it. To me as a child, it always tasted like sparkling soda but with alcohol. It had a kind of slight sweetness and just tasted kitschy and fun. You could guzzle it. But for Yuka Gronov, writer of the book Caviar with Champagne, Common Luxury and the Ideals of the Good Life in Stalin's Russia, published by Berg in 2003, since at the time it was the only sparkling wine available in the East, it is impossible to separate its bland and sugary taste from the rather happy memories associated with it. I quote, It is difficult to separate the taste of the drink from everything else that I experienced during some hot, late summer evenings in Moscow or on the high banks of the river Dnieper in Kiev in my youth. It was like the Coca-Cola of the Soviet Union. It symbolized the good Soviet life. It was the wine of birthdays and New Year's Eve celebrations. But the life wasn't easy at all in spite of the propaganda and it was a very contradictory period. As Anya von Bremen recalls, there was this whole happiness industry that produced uplifting musical comedies and films. The champagne and chocolate were part of this. There was a lot of cheer, but at the same time, people were being arrested at night and were terrified. The Soviet Skoye Champagne Skoye paradox illustrates perfectly all the contradictions of a regime and an era when store shelves were empty, but there were ads for the Soviet champagne on the trucks taking prisoners from the cities to the gulag. The production and consumption of Soviet Skoye Champagne Skoye will keep growing until the 1980s and Mikhail Gorbachev's anti-alcohol campaign. Production started to grow again in the late 1990s and today, The USSR is gone, but Novi Izvet is still the leading brand in the country. It belongs to Putin's close friend Yuri Govalchuk, who hosted his daughter's wedding in his ski resort back in 2013. The other main producer, Abro Gioso, belongs to another oligarch close to the regime, Boris Titov. So what does the Russian Champagne Skoye taste like today? For the mainstream labels, honestly, it's forgettable. As 1992 world's best sommelier Philippe Forbrak puts it in a 2021 interview, it's drinkable, but it lacks quality, it lacks elegance, and most importantly, it lacks balance. For 20 euro retail price per bottle back then, I'm not sure it's worth it. However, in the 2000s, some Russian producers started to invest to make better wines, with the help of champagne enologists such as Hervé Gestin from Duval-Leroy consulting for Abroadioso. In 2020, a Fanagoria Blanc de Blanc 2017 from the Taman Peninsula, on the shores of the Black Sea, even won the gold medal at the Chardonnays of the World contest in Burgundy. But despite the efforts of some producers and Putin's aggressive policy, Russian sparkling wine isn't going to replace the famous French bubbles. For Champagne is only from Champagne. 
So here is the story of the special relationship between Russia and Champagne since Alexander II and the creation of Crystal to Stalin's Sovietskoye Champagneskoye and the development of the Russian wine industry in the early 21st century. And to tell you this story, I have used an article written by journalist Jessica Gingrich and published in Gastroscura in November 2019. At the time of Vladimir Putin's announcement in July 2021, Russia only represented about 1.8 million bottles of champagne per year, so a rather limited market in terms of volume, but strategic in value since it was centered on high-end products. But today, that story is on pause. Since February 2022 and the invasion of Ukraine, all ties with Russia have been broken off, and most champagne houses have stopped exporting and closed their points of sales in Russia. If Russian producers keep producing and selling in their local market, the economic situation of their country makes them vulnerable now that all the European markets, and especially Eastern Europe, are closed. Exchanges with Russia will only resume when the war comes to an end. But when will that be? 